just start this. I'm, is this working? Yes. Okay. Um, Plato, what are we thinking? <laughs> is, are you snorting and scorn at Plato? I was actually thinking of dropping your book, which I did. Why? Because it fell in my lap. Oh, you mean you were thinking well, literally of dropping, dropping the book. You, you weren't considering, shall I drop this book or not? Yeah, it just, you were thinking about the fact that the book was dropping. Okay, yeah, oh, so, really. so you were being true to fact. Okay, how many people are reading Plato for the first time? I know someone said they were reading The Apology in another class. That was yeah. you. Um, for most of you, it's your first reading of Plato. Um, okay, so let me just give you a little bit of background. Um, and uh, a little bit of a way of thinking about um, Socrates, who's essentially the figure through whom Plato um, says what he wants to, what he wants to say. Um, Alfred North Whitehead said very famously that all of Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato. And it's a long footnote, but a footnote to Plato. I think that's, that's more or less true. That is, there's almost no problem in contemporary philosophy, um, even problems that come up through, through things like quantum theory, that there isn't um, some thinking in Plato that um, anticipates or is relevant to thinking about these issues. Um, to say that it anticipates and is relevant too doesn't mean that Plato gets things right, but to take a very famous example, Charles Darwin um, was in the London Zoo once as he was working out um, the theory of natural selection, and um, he suddenly, he was, he was watching some monkeys, and he suddenly um, um, had a thought which he scribbled very surreptitiously. He talks about the surreptitiousness of this scribbling. But he wrote a note in the zoo very surreptitiously in which he said, Plato's doctrine of pre-existence, the doctrine of pre-existence in the dialogue called the, the Fido, which we're not doing, but I think some of you may have done in um, a different class, um, is true, says Darwin, but for pre-existence, read monkeys. Um, that is that what Darwin understood is that there was a deep level in which this Platonic doctrine, which seems entirely myth mythological, we haven't really touched on it in these two dialogues, but um, it's something we will talk about, that this apparently mythological idea that the soul is immortal and pre-exists the human body, um, and that the soul has knowledge which comes to it without learning. That is the issue in the Mino at least, um, or a lot of the issue in the Mino, that the soul can have knowledge um, as recollection rather than knowledge as learning. Um, Darwin says, yeah, basically that's right. That is that what Plato has um, put his finger on is a fact about how creatures work, how organisms work. Um, and that fact um, is a puzzling one that requires an explanation, and that explanation takes the form of some pre-existence before you come into your individual existence in the world, in the empirical 
world around you. That is the world um, into which you're born with this name and this body and these parents and this situation in this city, on this continent, etc. That there's something in you that pre-exists that. For Darwin, that's inheritance. Um, eventually, although Darwin didn't know this, um, this, would be, um, this would be what Mendel describes um, in his theory of um, genes. Um, so platonic pre-existence is actually something that um, ultimately pans out um, in, in, um, in the theory, in, well, in what's called the modern synthesis, um, in the theory of evolution um, combined with the theory of genetics. Um, there's, I knew a physicist once who was very anti-philosophical and what she said was, you know, philosophers have been worrying about the same issues for 3,000 years. They failed to solve them. Let the scientists have a crack at them. Um, and she thought, you know, science knew the answers that philosophy didn't. Philosophy isn't about answers. It's about questions. Um, the reason Western philosophy can be called a footnote to Plato is that everything that Western philosophy does is essentially it tackles the questions that Plato raised. But not only that, everything that science does also tackles the questions that Plato raised. Um, some of you probably know that Newton's Principia, which is the work that, are, that was the origin of modern physics, is the title in English is um, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, the Principia. Um, so it's the principles of natural philosophy, the phrase natural philosophy in that title. Um, that's an older name for science. That is, it's philosophy in the examination of nature. Um, this came to be called science, but um, it's traditionally called natural philosophy. And again, it really it doesn't start with Plato, but Plato is um, sort of like Homer. He is the monumental figure who did more than anyone before him um, in thinking about philosophy as, um, as, as a subject, um, as um, a way of approaching the strange fact that here we are in the world. In a late dialogue, and I'm going to tell you in a, in a minute what I mean by early, middle, and late, but in a late-ish dialogue, um, Plato says, and Aristotle will echo this, that the origin of philosophy is wonder. That is, you look around and you wonder, um, how is this? How did, how can this be? How can these things be? Um, has, any, has anyone read the Fido? Um, yeah, so you may recall that, that, that in the Fido, Socrates um, gives, gives, a, gives his own history, his own autobiography, and one of the things that he says is, um, I used to be tormented by, by questions that I d couldn't quite answer when I was a kid. Um, and these questions were um, just every time I tried to think them through. And he gives an example of the sort of thing that you can imagine a very brilliant um, adolescent would start worrying about. He says, so if there are two people one of whom is a head taller than the other. So you have a shorter person and a taller person, one person, and they differ from each other um, by, by a head. One is a head taller than the other. Um, then how do they differ from each other? Since they differ from each other by a head, each is different from the other by a head. So they're really the same, because each is related to the other as the other is related to him. 
And this was driving me crazy. I didn't understand how I could have a conception of one person being taller than another when their relationship was going to be the same. Now, you can imagine, or maybe you can't because you're virtuous, but you can imagine situations late at night on um, a Saturday night when you're not studying where you could just really get into this question um, in a kind of lazy and wandering way. Um, and that's the sort of thing that Socrates was thinking about all the time. Um, and thinking about those questions, um, thinking about trying to be clear on things that the more you try to be clear on, the less clear they seemed to be. That's what drove him to philosophy. The word philosophy in Greek means love of wisdom. As Philadelphia means um, brotherly love, that is love of brothers, Phil, love. Um, Sophia is wisdom. So the love of wisdom is what philosophy is. Um, if we are proceeding in this class um, with, with whatever degree of accuracy. In thinking of Homer, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, as one person, um, we a little bit have to think of Socrates as being at least four people. Um, not literally four different people, but, um, but there are four different, um, you could say there are four different versions of Socrates. Um, that at least four, there's actually a fifth in Aristophanes and there are more still, but four different versions of Socrates that are associated with um, Socrates the philosopher. Um, there's first of all the real Socrates and what we know about him, um, the main thing um, that we know about him is that he didn't write, um, that his way of philosophizing was always in conversation, was always talking. Um, that the dialogues that Plato wrote or wrote up, and those are two different things, writing and writing up, um, the dialogues that Plato, or we could say they're three different things, Plato wrote some of them down, Plato wrote some of them up, and then Plato just wrote some of them. Um, but the dialogues that Plato um, wrote down, wrote up, or wrote are um, allegedly his notes on what Socrates was saying in these conversations. From the Mino, you can tell that, there, that huge audiences would gather to hear what Socrates was saying when he started having conversations with people. Not only the boys, the slaves um, who belonged to Mino, who were hanging out with him and listening to the dialogue, um, but the people who come in um, and um, sometimes get involved and sometimes don't. Um, Socrates had students who followed him around um, and took down what he said, but Socrates didn't think you could write philosophy. What Socrates thought was that philosophy is always a process of examination of ideas, but the ideas have to be ideas that people really have, and that whatever truth comes out, comes out in conversation in someone asking, in Socrates asking someone else about their ideas. So Socrates was actually against writing philosophy. Um, he was always for the context in which it was written. But Plato and others took, were, who were his students took notes on what he said. Um, and those notes are, there's, you can compare 
the notes that Plato took, especially when we get to the Apology, with the notes that Xenophon took, um, a historian and writer contemporary with Plato, of the same um, situation. So, so the reading for Friday, among the reading for Friday, is the Apology, which is Socrates' trial for his life, and in the Apology, he makes some pretty amazing speeches. In Xenophon's notes on the same trial and the same things that Socrates says, Socrates comes out pretty differently. Um, so there's Xenophon's Socrates, and there's Plato's Socrates. Um, and there was the real Socrates who said whatever it was that Xenophon and Plato took down differently. Um, but in both cases, what you have are... Um, texts which claim to be transcripts, they wrote quickly, they wrote in shorthand, texts that claimed, and they also had very good memories, texts that claimed to be transcripts of what Socrates said, since Socrates himself did not write. Um, in this way, he's a little bit like Homer. Other people wrote down what he said. Um, in looking at Socrates, as he appears in Plato. So there are, the, there are those two versions of Socrates. Now look at the Platonic Socrates. Socrates will sometimes say in some Platonic dialogues, and um, the Mino gives some um, um, indication of this, the Ion gives more of it, the Apology gives more of it. Socrates will sometimes say that the thing about him is that he doesn't know the truth that he goes around and keeps meaning people who um, claim to know the truth about some issue, what virtue is, or what piety is, or what knowledge is, or what love is, or what goodness is, um, what wisdom is. Um, he meets people who know these things, and Socrates then will say, I'm so glad you know, because me, I don't. Maybe you can tell me. And then what happens is whoever he's talking to um, starts getting undercut. That is, whatever it is they think they know, Socrates keeps saying, but wait, that's really interesting what you're saying, but it doesn't quite make sense. Um, because, and then he gets people to contradict themselves. Um, and he gets them to contradict themselves by pursuing the things they claim to know to show that they can't really know it, that they only think they know these things because they haven't thought them through. And so Socrates, the early Socrates, or the Socrates of these dialogues, is essentially skeptical. Um, what he is is someone who is always worrying complacency on the part of anyone. Anyone who says they know what the truth is, Socrates is always going to press them to show that they're too complacent when they say they know what the truth is. Now, when I say early Socrates, I don't mean Socrates when he's young. What I actually mean is Plato when he's young. And Plato, when he's young, will often have Socrates asking these questions when he's old. That is, Plato, who's about 50 years younger than Socrates, um, knew Socrates only as an old man. Um, and so the dialogues that he actually wrote down were dialogues um, that Socrates had as an old man. So the dialogues in which Socrates um, says that he doesn't know 
things, doesn't give a doctrine of his own, but is simply skeptical of other people's doctrines, it is believed on internal evidence, and I think you can be secure in this belief, um, but it's, this is, I think this is a true opinion, this isn't knowledge, it's believed on internal evidence that those dialogues, the dialogues in which Socrates comes out as a not-knower, are early dialogues and are most accurate to Socrates himself. So Socrates was one of the great philosophers of all time. His student Plato was probably the greatest philosopher of all times. And then Plato's student Aristotle was also one of the greatest philosophers of all time. So there's a sort of sequence of great philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, with Plato right in the middle of them. And so if you look at Plato's career, what you will see is that Plato starts out um, you know, kind of like, a, you know how when you, when you um, learn about the Supreme Court, you find out that certain justices were also law clerks before they became justices, that Stevens, who just retired, for example, was a law clerk, I think, for Warren in the 60s. So in a sense, Plato starts out as Socrates' clerk. He takes down his ideas. He takes down what he's saying. And the best, our best knowledge of Socrates' own views come from Plato's, for the, the dialogues where Plato is being most accurate in reporting Socrates and not putting in his own ideas. Then later when Plato got older, what he started doing was thinking that Socrates was um, either wrong or hadn't gone far enough in his thinking. Um, so Plato then, like a dramatist, started writing dialogues which he claimed but probably no one really believed him, and he didn't want people to really believe him. But he claimed, oh, yeah, these are other conversations that Socrates had in which he made other arguments. And those arguments are the middle, are, are conventionally called the middle dialogues. And in the middle dialogues, what you will see is Socrates having words put into his mouth by Plato. This is not stuff that Socrates really said. This is stuff that Plato um, uses Socrates' authority in order to um, put forth in his own writing. So in the middle dialogues, Socrates is still recognizably the real person whom Plato and his friends knew and revered and admired. But now he's saying things that he didn't actually say and giving an exposition of beliefs that he didn't actually have. Um, those are probably the greatest of the dialogues, um, and, but they're also harder than the early dialogues um, because there Plato is giving his own philosophical views, which are much more elaborate and much less skeptical than Socrates's. As you'll see in the Apology, the Delphic Oracle tells Socrates that he's the wisest of all humans, that he knows more than anyone else, and Socrates is puzzled by this, but then he realizes that the only difference between him and everyone else is that he, Socrates, knows that he knows nothing. That's the one thing that he knows is that he really doesn't know anything. And everyone around him, no one else seems to know that about themselves. 
So Socrates says, the only way that I know more than anyone else is that I actually know my own ignorance, whereas other people don't. Yeah. Um, he does, and yeah, he refers to it briefly, and that's something that, that we'll talk about in the Ion, but it's in the Apology that he's very explicit about that. Um, in the middle dialogues, there's plenty to know, um, and Plato um, has Socrates saying those things. So the longest of the middle dialogues is the Republic, um, and Socrates has a whole lot to say in the Republic about um, what, how the state should be constituted, um, what the world should look like, um, even what the afterlife might be like. Um, and a lot of the Republic, um, in one way or another, actually contradicts. It's not, Plato wants to say that these things are consistent with early Socrates, but a lot of it actually contradicts um, stuff that, that Socrates has said. Um, Plato tries to finesse that because Socrates is the authority into whose mouth he puts his own ideas, but a lot of it is inconsistent. Then, just to show you how, how um, interesting the chronology is, when Plato himself gets to be old, um, he sort of starts giving up Socrates as his mouthpiece, and he has other figures be the great philosophers. So Socrates is still involved in these dialogues, but in, these di in the late dialogues, in a typical late dialogue, like the laws, a stranger will come to Athens, and Socrates will say to him something like, I heard that you're really smart what do you believe? And the whole dialogue will be the stranger saying what he believes, and at the end Socrates will say, yeah, I think you're right. Um, and when the stranger comes, the Eleatic stranger is one of them, when the stranger comes and gives his own philosophical doctrine, that's Plato not trying to put it into Socrates' mouth. That's Plato essentially um, saying what he himself thinks almost straightforwardly, um, just saying there's this guy who said that. Um, you'll see a version of this in the symposium, um, which is which is middle, but which is which is tr which is probably trending on late, um, where the figure who gives the doctrine that Socrates endorses is the philosopher Diotima, um, the first, um, I think, the first great female philosopher in um, the record of Western philosophy. And Socrates says, this is what she taught me, and she was absolutely right. Um, and it's a pretty amazing part of the symposium. Um, one thing, just to tell you, one thing that Plato does is in the transition to the late dialogues, um, there's a dialogue called the Parmenides. Some of you know who Zeno is. Um, so Zeno is the person who proved that uh, Achilles could never catch a tortoise. Do people know about this? Even, okay, Achilles and the tortoise, this is not a familiar... Um, okay, so there's, there are various versions of Zeno's paradoxes. The um, one that probably most people know is how the arrow can never get to a target. Is this, does this ring a bell for you? That if you shoot an arrow at a target, um, before the arrow gets to the target, it has to go half the distance to the target, and before it goes half the distance, it has to go half the distance to half the distance and so on. So it has, to, it has to do an infinite number 
of trips, each one half the distance of the previous one, so how can it ever get there? Tom Stoppard has a philosopher um, uh, give an exposition of this in his play, um, in his play Travesties, um, and he says, and therefore, is it, no, it's not tra in Jumpers, and he says, therefore, St. Sebastian died of fright. That is, instead of being hit by arrows, he was just frightened to death. Because, of course, the arrow could never hit him. Um, I never found the, the arrow version of Zeno's paradox um, uh, particularly powerful. But there is a version that I do find powerful, which is the Achilles and the Tortoise version. Um, and it's one that Lewis Carroll also found very powerful. He wrote a little dialogue called What, the, what Achilles Said to the Tortoise. So the, um, are you trying to see if the, if the second hand will ever hit the 12? Um, okay. <laughs> Um, what the, the way this paradox works I could do it on the board if you want um, but see if this makes sense to you is imagine that Achilles who is, what's his epithet? Swift-footed Achilles good, is racing is racing slow and sluggish but blameless and godlike tortoise um, across the plains of Troy um, and the tortoise has a one-meter head start. Um, and um, actually, we, we, uh, the, the unit of measure for the, for the Greeks were feet. Um, and then there was a pace, which was six feet. Um, so so a, a Greek foot, um, which, is, which is the word um, pedes, or it's pace pedes, as in... Um, when you go see a podiatrist or a centipede, um, it's roughly the length of a foot. And a pace is sort of like our yard, which is that it's a stride. So let's just say that Achilles gives the, gives the tortoise a six-foot or one pace or one stride advantage because Achilles says, I'm so fast. Um, and Z what Zeno says is he's wrong. He shouldn't do that because he can never catch the tortoise. So what's the proof that he can never catch a tortoise? So the starter arrow goes off, um, <laughs> and um, both the tortoise and Achilles start running. And after a certain amount of time, Achilles gets to where the tortoise had begun. That is, Achilles passes the tortoise's starting point. Achilles runs a pace, and he is now neck in neck, or toe in toe, or toe in claw with where the tortoise had begun. But by the time Achilles gets to where the tortoise had begun, the tortoise has also moved forward. So Achilles keeps running, and he gets to where the tortoise was when Achilles was where the tortoise had begun. Are you following this? But in the meantime, the tortoise has moved forward some more. So Achilles, Achilles keeps moving, and he now gets to where the tortoise was when Achilles got to the place where the tortoise was when Achilles started running. But in the meantime, the tortoise has gone forward more. So do you want me to diagram this, or is this all clear? Um, so the idea, according to Zeno, is that Achilles can never catch up with the tortoise because he always has to catch up to where the tortoise was, was when he started in any given time slice. But the tortoise will always have moved while Achilles is catching up to where he was. He gets closer and closer to the tortoise, but he never catches up with him.
I mean, I understand the, the reasoning. It's just in reality, eventually Achilles <laughs> will go past the point where the turtle is. So how does what that turtle? Work? We're talking tortoises. Tortoise. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so what happens once Achilles gets to the point where the turtle is at the same time and passes him and so on and so forth? So um, just to remind you of the Lewis Carroll joke about this, um, the, the joke, I think it's in Through the Looking Glass, is someone says, we call him tortoise because he taught us. So... This is, this is what Zeno toyed us. That's why it matters that it's a tortoise. Um, all right, there, so, so you're, you're bringing in empirical trash, the illusion that is reality, <laughs> as though that matters. Um, exactly. as, as, I mean, as, as Groucho Marx said, as, yeah, as Groucho Marx once said, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Um, <laughs> so that's essentially what Zeno is saying, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? Um, just, we'll get to that in a second. What did you want to say? Uh, same thing? No, 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 no. Okay, so I should diagram. Um, that's okay. Tortoise. Fleet-footed Achilles. Can anyone draw? <laughs> <laughs> Are you implying that he has a fleet of ships for feet? Yes. Okay. That's exactly what I'm implying. Okay? So the tortoise is running this track and Achilles is running this track. Okay? Let's say Achilles is running 25 times as fast as the tortoise, which is, you know, reasonable. Um, 25 times as fast is actually really fast if you think about it. The airplane only goes very swift The tortoise are very fast, by the way. Well, there you go. That's why he said tortoise and not turtle. Um, Turtles are faster. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I know. Very fast your So, so the race begins. Okay, and um, in just a second or two, Achilles gets from here to here. But in the meantime, the tortoise, not nearly as fast as Achilles, gets from here. Let's just look at rear foot. We're doing rear foot of. Yeah, let's do rear foot. No, let's do rear foot. Rear foot here, the tortoise's rear foot gets here. Okay? So, obviously Achilles has covered a lot more distance than the tortoise has covered. However, the tortoise has covered some distance. That's all that Zeno is saying. So Achilles covers more, but the tortoise covers some. So now, we look at where, when Achilles gets from here to here, to where the tortoise has gotten to. But in the meantime, the tortoise has gotten here. Again, Achilles has covered more distance than the tortoise, but the tortoise has covered some distance. So now Achilles gets from here to here really, really fast. Really fast. But the tortoise has gotten to there. And it's still just barely ahead of Achilles. Just barely ahead of Achilles. It's like the um, West Virginia Senate race. Um, so every time Achilles catches up to where the tortoise was, the tortoise is a tiny bit ahead. And that's a constantly diminishing quantity, but it's always a positive quantity. The tortoise is always a positive number, a number greater than zero number of feet ahead of Achilles. And for Achilles to pass the tortoise, that number has to snap negative, but it can't. Yeah. So you were talking about how these philosophies have influenced a lot of empirical sciences recently. Yes. And this 
I think this must have influenced Newton when he was inventing calculus because yes. the concept of limits. Exactly. Like it's so, it, limit is Achilles' approaches tortoise. Yes. Not only well, not only did it did it influence Newton, but it wasn't solved until Cantor in the twentieth century. Hmm. Zeno's paradoxes are serious paradoxes. They're not easy to solve. Um, they look easy to solve, but they're not easy to solve. I'll give you another one. This is a Galilean version of Zeno's paradoxes, which is here's a vice. Oops. Here's a chariot wheel. Um, and the chariot wheel has a hub. And what we do is we roll the chariot down the plane, and what happens as we roll it is that they're spokes, so the hub and the wheel are turning concentrically at the same time. So if we roll the chariot one full circumference, let's say the circumference of the chariot is a meter, and we roll it one full circumference, how far will it have gone? A meter. a meter. So let's just say that this is the chariot rolled for a meter, so it goes a full meter. Um, that is one circumference. Um, in the meantime, the hub is turning through the air. Um, it's not on anything, it's just turning through the air. Um, let's say the hub here has a circumference of a quarter of a meter, right? Is that reasonable? So 0.25, this is one. Um, how many times does it roll at, when, the, when the wheel rolls a meter? It rolls once. No, it doesn't roll four times. It should, but it doesn't because it's fixed. Because the spokes aren't bending and twisting. The spokes are fixed. So this thing rolls a meter. The hub rolls around once, and yet in rolling around once, it's only gone a quarter of a meter. Help! What do we do? If you're Zeno, what you say, and this is what um, Elona is denying, but if you're Zeno, what you say is, life is an illusion. <laughs> None of what we see can possibly be real, because it makes no sense. It's all some crazy dream that we're having, um, and motion is impossible. Um, and that is what Zeno says. So we're all in the matrix. So, so, so he didn't conclude that it's possible that we just don't know some stuff about reality? Yeah. What we don't know is that we're in the matrix. Um, but the fact that reality makes no sense, which is what he's saying, the fact that reality makes no sense um, proves that what we believe is an illusion. So Zeno was actually... Um, demonstrating. So um, Diogenes the Cynic um, is a figure who's um, fa the, the word Cynic, do people, do people know who Diogenes is or, or what the word Cynic So Cynic is from the Greek word for dog. In Latin it becomes canis. Um, kunos in Greek, that's what Argos is, is a dog. Um, there was a school of philosophy called the Cynics um, who thought that everything was BS um, and that whenever philosophers um, talked in fancy ways, like showing that motion didn't exist and so on, um, they thought they're just, they're, they basically had your reaction, which is to say um, that just shows um, the ridiculousness of human beings trying to philosophize. So the cynics basically thought humans were too high and mighty, and they thought that they could, through their own minds, prove what the world was really like. Um, and um, the cynics thought humans were ridiculous for thinking that. So the cynics took a cynical view of the capacities of human beings. Diogenes very famously um, carried a lantern around in daylight 
And when people said, why are you carrying a lantern around? He says, I just can't find an honest man anywhere. Um, he also lived in a barrel because he thought that clothes were stupid. But, um, his famous reputation of Zeno, he and Zeno were debating once, and Zeno presented um, the presented one of his paradoxes, not the Achilles and the tortoise one, but they're all really the same paradox, paradoxes of motion. Um, Zeno presented one of those paradoxes and, um, and said, okay, Diogenes, try to refute that. And Diogenes walked across the room and said, you're refuted. Um, <laughs> that is, you, you, you say there can't be motion. I just moved, dude. Um, therefore, you're wrong. And um, so that's the extreme other view, is that philosophy, if you do philosophy, you get into paradoxes, and you get into things which make no sense, and that just shows how little philosophy can do. Now, that argument, that's a very old argument in philosophy and in intellectual life to begin with. Um, whether, as a friend of mine once put it, your... Um, one and a half kilogram brain can understand the universe or not, can understand a universe which is, which is 10 to the 40th times the size of your one and a half kilogram brain. It's ridiculous, um, as Christopher Walken might put it. It's ridiculous um, to think that you can do that. Um, and then on the other hand, there are people like Plato um, and Zeno and Parmenides who will say, all that we have in the world ultimately is thought. The only thing that we can do in, um, in interacting with each other and in the world is thought. And all we need to examine is thought. So let's think about thinking. Julian. Uh, question. Um, maybe I'm, I, I could be thinking of something completely different, but who, who was it that, that discovered or, or um, whose idea was it that, that molecules can be broken down yeah, Democritus. Democritus. Well, it, no, it actually gets related in the in the nineteenth century. Um, who knew you were going to you were going to hear about this? Um, the uh, Democritus believed that there were. Uh, yeah, it is related to this. That is the idea: is you can either cut things up infinitely or you can't. Um, if you can cut them up infinitely, um, the the idea of an infinitesimal is that it's equivalent to zero. Um, and if you can cut things up infinitely, um, you'd cut them down to eventually get to the point where there was nothing left. But if there's nothing left, how can you get anything out of that? How can, the, how can clumping nothing together give you something? So that's, that's the Democritus's idea, is there must be a smallest possible unit of matter, which he called the uncuttable or the atom. Um, tom in Greek means to cut. Um, and as in a tonsillectomy means cutting out the tonsils. Um, tom means cut, and atom is an uncuttable thing. It can't be split any further. Einstein showed that was wrong, but at any rate, um, it can't be split any further, and that's what it means for something to be an atom. Whether atoms existed was debated until the beginning of the 20th century. Um, it wasn't, Dalton was the first modern scientist to um, to recover the atomic theory of matter. Um, but Ernst Mach, um, the great 19th century physicist and psychologist and various other things from which we get um, measurements of the speed of sound, Mach 1, Mach 2, etc., um, did not think 
that um, atoms existed. He thought there was no reason not to see matter as infinitely divisible in the same way that space is infinitely divisible. You don't say, well, how can a line be a meter long if a point has no dimensions? How do you clump a bunch of zero-dimensional points into a line? You just do. Um, and maybe Newton tells you how you do it, or Leibniz tells you how you do it, or there's a way of formalizing it. But the fact that you have proportions, that one line is twice as long as another line, or one line segment is twice as long as another line segment, is no more, or I'm sorry, put it another way. Um, what Dalton showed is that you can decompose water into hydrogen and oxygen. And you've probably all done this, right? You put a battery in water with a little vinegar in it and put test tubes. Take a nine volt, but don't do this at home. Um, but the way I did it when I was eight is you take a nine volt battery, um, you put it in water with a little vinegar or lemon juice, and you put test tubes over the two terminals so that they're both vertical so it's easy to do. They were at work. Um, it was a good thing. They actually weren't happy when I showed them this once. Um, and you put test tubes, you fill the test tubes with water and put them over the batteries. And what happens is you'll see bubbling up from the two terminals, you'll see little bubbles going into the test tubes. You've all done some version of this. No. Oh, it's really cool. Well, um, it's kind of like in chemistry when you use like electrons. Yeah. And you yeah. Like separate really salts. Like well, in this case, what you're separating is hydrogen and oxygen. And so Dalton separated hydrogen and oxygen. And the important thing was that he saw that, the, that one test tube had twice as much gas in it as the other. Um, and the test tube with twice as much gas had hydrogen, H2, and the test tube with um, only one times as much gas as itself um, had, um, had the oxygen. And then he knew that the ratio of gases that make up water is there two parts hydrogen for one part oxygen. And that's why he said water was H2O, two hydrogens per oxygen. And he said, but the fact that you have this proportion shows that they're atoms because there have to be two times N hydrogen atoms and N oxygen atoms to make a certain quantity of water. And what Mach said is, no way. You can have a line segment, which is twice the length of another line segment, but you couldn't say the one that's twice the length of the other had twice as many points that actually had dimension. They both have an infinite number of points. Hydrogen and oxygen both have an infinite number of um, point-like um, bits to them. And there is no smallest, um, there is no smallest unit. Um, and it was only Rutherford who showed that there actually was. Um, it was only really at the beginning of the 20th century that atoms were demonstrated um, as actually existing. But these do all go back to um, um, Zeno. Another one of Zeno's paradoxes was that, well, uh, okay, two more that are, that are equivalent is Zeno says, look, if you have um, a peck of seeds, that's a lot of seeds, um, and you drop one seed onto the ground, you won't hear it. Um, if you drop two seeds onto the ground, you won't hear it. If you dump all the seeds onto the ground, you will hear it. So there must be a point where you're hearing a single seed because maybe you don't hear 782 seeds, but you do hear 783 seeds crashing to the ground. But that means that you're actually hearing a single seed the seed that makes the difference between 782 and 783, you actually do hear that seed, even though you don't hear that seed. 
Therefore, there can be no motion and things can't fall to the ground, even though you tried to show by dropping Plato at the beginning of the class that things could fall to the ground. You were wrong. Um, another example that he uses is he says, how can you think, and this is something that you can see um, Plato or Socrates picks up when he's talking to Mino, is um, Zeno says, how can you have an edge of anything? Because to have anything, it's got to have a shape. Um, but if it has a shape, then it doesn't, then it's not just an edge, it has an edge. But if you try to look at that edge um, and say, all I want to look at is the edge and not the thing it's an edge of, either you're looking at nothing or you're looking at something, but if you're looking at something, it has a shape. So where does this come up in contemporary thinking? In fractals. Um, the idea behind fractals is that there is a mathematical way of talking about things that always have shapes no matter how much, how microscopically you look at them, they still have shapes. Um, so these are all, this is just a way of saying, I wasn't going to go into any of this, but this really is a way of saying that these are issues that came up in 500 BC, E, um, and that are still live issues, not only for philosophers who are perfectly willing to talk about um, fake reality, that is, are perfectly willing to think that um, time and space are uniform when we know that they're not. Um, but these are, these are issues that not only come up for philosophers, they come up even in contemporary ways for scientists. Um, and there are actually theories about space now which make it atomic um, for reasons that Zeno seems to have um, begun. That is, that there, that there are... Um, uh, Smolin talks about this, that they're atoms of space and time, as he calls them, that space and time are not continuous. Um, and, well, I mean, I mean, I don't want to go too far into this, but, but it, it is interesting. The whole idea of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, in a sense, might give you, um, might be thought of giving you a smallest unit of space or of time. And quantum theory can be thought of as giving you a smallest unit of space and of time, that it's even in principle possible to think. Um, as being space-like or time-like. Um, so all these issues are first raised by Zeno, um, and they're issues that are still extremely live in contemporary science as well as contemporary philosophy. Now, um, just to go back to the history of what Plato is doing, um, when Plato basically decided that he was going to give up his middle ideas, the ideas that he puts into Socrates' mouth, as Plato himself um, goes into his late philosophizing, he does something really interesting, which is he writes a dialogue called the Parmenides, where Socrates, at the age of about 18 or 19, um, that is about 30 years before Plato is born, Socrates runs into the very old Parmenides, who was the greatest of the pre-Socratic philosophers, um, fantastically interesting philosopher. He runs into Parmenides as an old man, um, and, Par and Parmenides' student, Zeno. So what Zeno was doing, what Zeno's paradoxes, just to give you a little of this prehistory, Zeno's paradoxes were demonstrations of the truth of Parmenides' views. Parmenides didn't argue by way of paradox, but he did say that all was illusion, that there was no motion, that there was only one substance in the universe, 
um, and that that substance couldn't even be called one because that would imply that there was something that was different from one, which would give you two, one and the thing that isn't one, and you couldn't have two things. The only thing that existed was oneness. Um, Taoism actually comes from the same sources as Parmenides, just so you know, these things bifurcated early. Um, but Parmenides is giving a kind of early Greek um, account of what you will also get in the Tao Te Ching in Lao Tzu. Um, that is that there's, that there's a oneness that can't even be called oneness because to call it oneness would be to imply that it might not have been one. Um, so Zeno's um, paradoxes are meant to prove the truth of what his teacher Parmenides said. Um, so now what you have is Plato as an old man is writing a dialogue which takes place 20 or 30, 30 years before he's born, so maybe as much as 100 years before its publication. So Plato writes a dialogue which purports to describe a conversation that happened 100 years earlier. And in that dialogue, Socrates is trounced by Zeno and by Parmenides. Um, that is, Socrates gives his views, and they're very, very clear expositions of Socratic views from the middle period, which we'll talk about, but this is the theory of forms, which you may have heard about. Socrates gives his view about the theory of forms. Uh, the theory of forms is something that we get a little bit of in the Mino um, and a little bit of in the Ion. Um, Socrates gives you his view of the theory of forms, which is probably the most famous element of Platonic doctrine, and Parmenides destroys him, um, completely destroys him in this dialogue, and Socrates is left speechless. So the dialogues that tend to get taught in courses like this and in introductory philosophy courses and so on are the ones where Socrates wins, um, but in late Plato, Socrates loses, and it's really interesting to see him losing. But for our purposes, just narratively, the interesting thing here is that um, the younger Socrates is in a dialogue, the older Plato is when he writes it. That is, it's in a way a sign of respect that Plato shows Socrates to have him only lose when he's immature as, a, as in his own life. Now, the doctrine in the Parmenides that Socrates espouses is not immature, but the idea is, yes, yeah, Socrates lost to Parmenides, but Parmenides was the greatest living philosopher, and Socrates was just starting out. It's not a big deal that he lost to him. Nevertheless, the Parmenides is Plato showing the limitations even of his middle ideas. Um, and it's a really hard dialogue. I made the mistake of trying to teach it in uh, USEM once. Um, it's a really hard dialogue, but a fascinating one. Um, and, but again, it, it, gives you, it gives you some um, idea about the distinction um, in Plato between early, middle, and late. So again, let me just give you briefly, this will partly just be a way for you to um, keep track of where you are as you read these dialogues. The early Plato, that is the young, excuse me, not the young Socrates, the young Plato that is the straightforward Socrates, is essentially a skeptic and an ironist. And by an ironist, what I mean is that he's always saying, you're so smart, you tell me what virtue is, because, you know, people like you, you're not, man, you're not only gorgeous, you're also smart. 
Um, I'm floored. Um, tell me what you think. Huh, that sounds right, but let me just ask you. Um, and a lot of people find Socratic irony um, very vicious. Um, there are a lot of later attacks on Socrates for his relentless irony, for the fact that he's always pretending um, that he's being outclassed by the person that he's... It's, it's a sort of Columbo mode in him. It's just one... Do you know, guys know who Columbo is? Nope. Really? Yeah. yeah, the detective Peter Falk. Um, watch him on, on, uh, on um, TV Land. Um, so he's always, there's just one thing I don't understand. You can see Socrates chomping a cigar. He, he seems to take, take a kind of glee in being somewhat obnoxious. Yeah, and um, that's what eventually gets him in trouble, as, as you will see in the Apology. I mean, it gets him in trouble throughout, but eventually leads to his death. Um, so, but early Socrates is always saying, you think, you know, you, you tell me what these things are because I don't really get them. And then he shows that the person who thinks they know what they are doesn't. Later, Socrates, that is middle, yeah. Did no, you? no, I'm Okay. Middle Plato comes up with the doctrine of forms. And the idea behind the doctrine of forms, which is really important and is still um, something that people think about, especially in math, um, is that if you see a book that you've never seen before, or a chair, or a table, or a person that you've never seen before, how do you know that that's a book, or a table, or a person, or a chair? Um, what makes it possible for you to know these things? And the answer is something like you have a paradigmatic conception of book, or table, or chair, or person, and you have an ideal version of this thing in your mind of which the real object is, excuse me, you, you have an ideal of the thing in your mind and the real object is a version or variation on that ideal. Yeah. And, and actually, it reminds me of the theories in psychology of how we recognize objects. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it fits a category for a chair in that it has four legs, a back. Right. So, so the idea of categories is Plato's idea. The idea of an ideal version, the, that very word ideal there comes from Plato. That there's an ideal chair in your mind that real chairs more or less conform to. And if they stop conforming to them, they're not chairs anymore, but they're something else. Um, there's an ideal person in your mind that real people more or less conform to. So this is the doctrine of forms, that there is a re an ideal realm that is, gives you the paradigm case for all objects that you find in reality. And therefore, that objects in reality are copies of the ideal. Later, this will be turned into, um, in more modern philosophy, and slightly less prejudicially, this will be turned into a type-token distinction. That is, that there's a type of thing, an iPhone, and then there are tokens of that thing, this iPhone. This thing here is an iPhone, but it's not the iPhone. Um, the iPhone is something that exists as a category or as a type of thing, 
um, just as human, human beings exist as a type of thing, planets exist as a type of thing, stars exist as a type of thing, of which individuals are tokens of that type. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is what, what's going to animate Wittgenstein, who's very anti-Platonic in his thinking about these things. Um, he denies that there's a single type for anything. Um, but it's, but that's the platonic idea that it really takes Wittgenstein to give a strong argument against, again, in the middle of the 20th century. Um, so that's middle Plato. Um, you can start seeing that idea in the Mino, and there it's mathematics, which is true. That is, there is such a thing as a square, and there is such a thing as doubling. And you may not know how to double the size of a square, but that's only because you've forgotten how to double it. So middle Plato, just the doctrine for middle Plato, which you start seeing in the Mino, um, is that everything that we see, we recognize and take the re and recognize seriously. We see, we re-know it. When we see a chair, we re-cognize it because in our minds there's already an ideal chair. We recognize human beings because in our minds there's already an ideal human being. So, everything in the world that we come to learn, we come to learn, says Plato, through recognition, which means that we already knew it. Everything we learned, we actually already knew. We already knew how to double the size of a square, but we forgot, and then we had to be brought to recognizing how to double the size of a square. Um, we were misled by our own forgetfulness and our own haziness. So what, he, what Middle Plato will then say is when we're born, we're born amnesiac. That is that we have in our minds knowledge of the truth of forms, knowledge of the realm or world of forms, but that gets all fogged over at birth by what Yeats calls honey of generation. The great line in Yeats which summarizes all this, if Yeats were tweeting, this is what he would tweet about Plato. He would say, as at Plato says, nature is but a spume that plays upon a ghostly paradigm of things. So nature is a spume, it's an illusion that plays upon a ghostly or ideal paradigm of things. We're born, we forget it, and what we learn in life is we lift our forgetfulness. We clear some of the fog away from what we already know. So early, early Plato, Socrates says, I know nothing. Middle Plato, Socrates says, we all know stuff, but we basically forget it all, and to know, we just have to remember. But we really do know nothing until we start clearing the fog away. Um, so that's how Plato claims there's a continuity between, between what Socrates says in the early dialogues and what he says in the middle dialogues. Yes, one question and then you guys. Yeah, sorry, can you just go through what we're supposed to have read? Yes, yeah, so for, yes, actually I should tell you this. For Friday, you should have read the Symposium and the Apology. 
because for today you've already read the Mino and the Ion. You should also read in this book, if you, do you all have this? Are you all reading Plato on this? Yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? The Signet? The Rouse, yeah. You should also read pages 312 to 319, which is the allegory of the cave in the Republic. And you should also read um, pages 406 to 407. So in addition to those two dialogues, there's another 10 pages to read, or nine pages to read. 312 to 319. So which version do you have? Oh, okay. If you don't, if you don't have the signet, what you want to read is Republic 514A to 520A. All editions of Plato have the original pagination of, I think it was a Renaissance edition. So 514A to 520A of the Republic. It's all the Republic. If all you have to do is say Plato 514A, and that sends you to the Republic. Um, and you should also read um, 605B to 607B. Six oh, not, if you have this, you don't need that. I'm just saying if you don't have the Rouse translation, you can find what you want in any translation of Plato by looking in the margins for 514A to 528. You have the right thing. Don't worry about it. So they are? Oh, shoot. All right, then pay. So 514A to 520A. Yes. And 605B to 607B. Seven B. 